Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. My friend and colleague Jeff Zeleny is one of America's very best political reporters. With decades of experience covering national campaigns for the Des Moines Register, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, ABC, and CNN. I sat down with him the day of the New Hampshire primary to glean his insights into the current race. But it's his personal story that inspires me from his childhood on a Nebraska farm and how that informs his reporting to his lifelong battle with a speech impediment he's overcome to become one of America's premier broadcast journalists. Here's our conversation. Jeff Zeleny, it is good to see you. It must be primary day uh, in New Hampshire because you're not natty in your normal broadcast journalist suit, but you're wearing a sweater and looking very much like the outdoorsman. Look, it is primary day. We're just uh, coming from uh, the morning show at Shavashan, which is a diner here in Manchester, New Hampshire. Primary days, we love election days. It's the second one of this uh, cycle. We'll see if it's the last. Yeah. Well, because we're doing this on primary day, I'm going to reserve political discussion for last. And I want to talk a little bit about you and your and 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 what you bring to your reporting, which is a, a body of life experience that I think helps distinguish you as the great journalist that you are. But tell me, first of all, about the Zelenies and like, where did the Zelenies originate? Where did the Zelenies come from and how they, how they end up in Nebraska? Well, Zeleny means green in Czech. So if I guess I converted my name, it would be Jeff Green, but there are a lot of those. There aren't many Jeff Zelenies, yeah. but look- There's I one in the NBA, the- I think, yeah. That's true, actually. I grew up uh, in Nebraska. Um, there are a lot of Czech- migrants to uh, Nebraska in you know the latter uh, part of the 1800s and uh, my father's uh, grandparents um, uh, immigrated to the US so certainly not a first second uh, even third generation but uh, I come from a Czech uh, community and my mother's side of the family also Czech so huh. um, have, I haven't done a 23 in me but I'm pretty sure I'm a pretty uh, pure uh, Czech from the uh, Bohemia um, part of the old world, um, and there's just a lot of them in uh, in southeast Nebraska where I grew up. And the New World was Exeter, not New Hampshire, but Nebraska, population 500. It's a little larger when I was there, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's isn't that the problem in rural America? All you young people leave, and that, that's is. a problem. But tell me about uh, your folks and growing up in Exeter, your, your, your families were, were farmers. Exactly. I lived about eight miles from a small town of Exeter. Uh, I had um, you know, pretty idyllic life growing up on a farm. We uh, worked a lot on the farm. It was not my strong suit, to say the least. So I knew that, that I would probably always want to do something else. But 
look, we raised corn and soybeans and hogs and cattle. And my dad was one of the hardest working people I've ever met. Did not go to college, but read two newspapers a day and would get Newsweek and US News and World Report and Time Magazine and Farming Magazine. So there's no doubt that my interest in current affairs and public affairs and current events came from uh, the newspapers. And also, interestingly, he was a farmer. So he you know, weathered the farm crisis of the 80s uh, by diversifying. And it was really my first uh, sense, really, as a young kid. Every day he would have us, my two brothers and I, whoever, um, whose ever turn it was, we would keep track of the farm markets that day, what the hog price was. And we would write it down in a tablet um, whenever it it was uh, set on the on the new news if it was the summertime or the evening news at night. He would have us keep track of what the price of corn was or hogs were, and that was really a sense of you know our first sense of this something is bigger than us, and this is a global commodity. So I always uh, relish the fact of uh, keeping the uh, market prices in that old notebook. Yeah, you you're a, a veteran of uh, Chicago journalism. You spent a few years at the Chicago Tribune. You probably remember mm -hmm. WGN, the station that sure. the Tribune owned. World greatest newspaper. Exactly. But their farm report was like one of their most popular features because it was listened to so widely in rural America. You know, it's interesting you talk about how your father read widely about politics and public affairs and so on. There is this like huge fissure between metropolitan America and rural America today. You see it every day in your coverage of politics. And part of it is uh, there, there is a caricature of rural America in metropolitan America. And I bet you there are people who listen to this podcast and say, wow, that's unusual, like a, a farmer who, who reads, you know, a farmer who is uh, well-versed uh, in public uh, affairs and interested in that and so on. Talk to me about this, your perspective as a journalist of this divide between rural and urban and suburban America uh, that has just grown wider and wider. It definitely has grown wider. I mean, just in the, you know, the a couple decades that I've been a professional reporter, and obviously I've lived in Washington since uh, um, I moved to Washington a month before 9-11, so I've been there quite some time now, but the divide has absolutely um, gotten much more pronounced. And I think it's really led to um, a misunderstanding and a lack of appreciation on both uh, sides from uh, the urban America side and the rural America side. I think the biggest thing is how people get their information now is just so, so dramatically different. My first job as a newspaper reporter was at our weekly paper, the Fillmore County News. I wrote stories for them. I was probably 15. We had a weekly newspaper that doesn't exist anymore. I worked at a small daily paper. But the the idea of telling stories and you know not just relying on the national news to get your news, I think is um, really explains a lot of our polarization right now. I mean, it was unheard of for anyone when I grew up to have cable television. Maybe the richest kid in our class, his parents had a satellite dish like near the end, but that was just not um, the case. So there was local radio, local newspapers. That is all different now. Everyone virtually who has a television is watching national news, and there's, there's just been a death of uh, local news and, and newspapers and stations. And I think that has led to a lot of our challenges with democracy and other things. But just in terms of how red and blue America view each other, it's a huge problem. You pile social media on there. Sure. 
And you know, I, I was just we I was just with uh, our colleague Van Jones, who was uh, who who spoke at length about this. The you know the the whole model of social media is to find out what aggravates, outrages, alienates you, uh, and uh, to keep giving you a steady diet of material that caters to that because that is what they discovered has keeps people online and their only interest is in keeping people online. So it shoves us into these silos where caricatures flourish. And um, as you say, really, really tough for democracy. Do you find yourself as a reporter, do you find yourself sometimes interpreting rural America to a disdainful metropolitan elite? I mean, without question, you know, with every presidential uh, campaign, and this is the seventh presidential campaign I've covered, one of the great things is we learn so much about the country, about the different moment in time of the country. But, um, you know, in the Trump era, I've absolutely found myself explaining um, some of the grievances. And I'm not talking about Trump's grievances. I'm talking about voters. Voters feel uh, left behind. So he actually very successfully tapped into that and poured gasoline on it or whatever other accelerant you want to think The same of. people who hate you, who look down on you, hate me and look down on me. And as he says, I'm your, what's a retribution? Yeah. And I'm not sure the voters I talk to don't necessarily, I don't know if they're looking for retribution, but they definitely, uh, my perspective growing up, having Trump voters in my family, um, seeing them at the holiday tables, other things, and having Democrats in my family as well. Um, I think it does give a good perspective. Um, I always joked when I was at the New York Times, I was part of you know, a different kind of, of diversity program because I went to a state school and I'm from Nebraska. You know, yeah. I was surrounded by a lot of Ivy League kids. And, uh, yeah. But I think it was a big... Um, I was too embarrassed to say this at the time when I was applying for my job at the New York Times in 2006. But my first daily newspaper job was at the York News Times, the York, Nebraska News Times. So it kind of looked like the New York Times if you like, looked at the masthead. But I was, uh, I was, I was way too embarrassed to say that when I was sitting in Manhattan interviewing uh, for my job at the Times. But now I fully embrace. I love the fact that my first daily newspaper job was at the York, Nebraska News Times. It teaches you accountability because you have to look people in the eye the next day when you write stories and things. But look, I think that the um, we can't go back. Social media has been. Um, eye-opening for a variety of reasons, but you're absolutely right. It has put us in our silos. And that's something that's one of the country's biggest challenges. I'm sure you spend some time when you go home interpreting metropolitan America to your neighbors sure. as well. I mean, I live part-time in uh, rural Michigan and part-time in Chicago and Arizona. And it's interesting to go from place to place and hear how people talk about each other. I want to return to your own your own family. You talked about your dad and how he taught you hard work, and you probably worked that farm when you were a kid. He gave his life in that work. And talk to me about that. I know this was later. It was you were grown when this happened. But what happened to your dad? I was grown, but th at the time I felt, uh, you know, like a pretty young boy when I got that call from uh, my brother Mike and said, you know, our dad's just been killed in a farming accident. I remember it very clearly. I was in the Chicago Tribune's Washington Bureau, October 26th, 2002, the day after Paul Wellstone was killed in a plane crash. And I was working on a story for the Sunday Chicago Tribune about how this was going to dramatically potentially change the midterm election race. 
Uh, my longtime friend and colleague, John McCormick, uh, who's based in Chicago, was on a plane going up to uh, Minnesota. We were co-writing this story, and I get a call from my brother, Mike, saying, uh, Dad uh, died in a farm accident. And it was, you know, just unbelievable. But what happened was he was, uh, it was a Saturday in Nebraska right before he was supposed to have lunch with my mom. Uh, they were going to watch the Nebraska football game uh, that day. And he was uh, uh, taking a large bale of hay out to uh, the pasture. And the bale of hay, one of those big, big round ones you see yeah. in the fields if you drive through, it wasn't uh, tied properly. And it came apart and it flipped the tractor and it killed him pretty much instantly, just a mile and a half from our house. So, and they were just on the verge of, uh, of retirement and they were about to sort of, you know, set off into some travels and things. So, uh, it really was devastating for my mom, of course, um, for all of us, but, uh, it was, uh, it was definitely like life defining in terms of, um, you know, when anyone loses a parent, I think it just makes you feel, you know, like you're finally the adult or whatever, but, um, he taught me so many things, but what I wonder now is what he would have thought of, the state of our our world and politics. He served on the school board for 12 or 14 years, was just a pillar of the community, um, and was very a very, very decent, um, smart, educated in the world sense, did not have a college degree, but boy, was he wise. And I really wonder uh, what he would have thought of this moment uh, today. And what do you think he would have thought? I think that he would have thought, he would have been very skeptical of, uh, of the uh, lack of uh, belief in institutions. He would have been very skeptical of the the entertainer from uh, New York who was trying to tell Red America that uh, he understood them. I got a little bit of a window into that um, from my uncle, my father's older brother. He actually lived for a couple decades longer, and he died of COVID right before the 2020 election. And he was in his upper 80s uh, living in a nursing home, and he described uh, former President uh, Trump as a snake oil salesman. He was just an old-time Democrat. But the rest of the family in the new generations are Trump voters. So just in those two generations, you sort of see the change in politics and other things. So I'm not exactly sure what my father would have thought. I'm not sure he'd be thrilled with uh, today's Democratic Party either. But um, it certainly is a different time. As the Democratic Party becomes more of a college-educated, metropolitan-based party, you know, the suburbs used to be a Republican stronghold, no longer uh how has the Democratic Party failed in terms of reaching out to those voters? There's such an incentive to sort of, because of the way we've siloed ourselves, there's such an incentive to sort of write off rural America for the Democratic Party. But that's, to me, it seems like a great risk. Without a doubt. And just like look at the map of the country. It wasn't that long ago, in fact, um, when... When President Obama was elected, yeah. uh, North Dakota had two Democratic senators, uh, South Dakota, one Democratic senator, Nebraska, obviously, Ben Nelson, not that long before Bob Kerry was governor. Well, you you covered the race. We won the state of Indiana. For sure. I mean, Barack Obama was the first Democrat since 1964 to win the state of uh, Indiana. Which wouldn't happen today, probably, just because of uh, of the changes. So, look, I think the party, the Democratic Party, absolutely, you can see it, has not has sort of atrophied in the rural areas because uh, they've gained ground in the uh, in the suburbs. But uh, Tom Vilsack, now the Ag Secretary, and of course he was that in the Obama administration as well. 
I've covered him for a very long time since he was a state senator in Iowa and then ran for governor in Iowa when I was at the Des Moines Register. And he has some very thoughtful um, and wise observations about how the Democratic Party has sort of ignored uh, rural America. And I think that that is um, uh, a lot of truth to what he says. This is what struck me in 2016, uh, listening to my neighbors in Michigan talk about people in Chicago, but also people in Chicago talk about rural America and just how much these stereotypes have, have taken hold. Even, you know, I think the Democratic Party still sees itself as the party of, of working people and tries to legislate in that way. But there is a sort of attitude that we want you to be more like us. We want you to get a college education and, you know, move here and, uh, and not a real appreciation for the people who work with their hands and work with their backs, people who feed us and make this country go, people like your dad. And it's a, not only is it a strategic mistake, but I think because I don't know how you win these battleground states consistently without winning some of those voters, but it's also uh, a, a mistake in terms of governance. And it's, it's, it's a mistake in terms of our commonality as Americans. Hey, I want to ask you about another aspect of your growing up. And I want to talk about your, your mom, Diane, who I've had the pleasure of meeting. Right. You talked about this in a book that John Hendrickson wrote about uh, uh, his battle with stuttering. And you had a childhood battle with stuttering that was pretty significant. And as you explained it in his book, and John was here, and we had a wonderful discussion, your mom was really kind of a hero of the story. She was, and um, I'm just the biggest fan of John Hendrickson and his book. And through that, I was actually always afraid to talk about this. In one respect, I didn't want uh, my bosses um, now in television necessarily to know that I stuttered. You can see it when I'm tired on TV or you know some other times I still um, I stammer and I have blockages. But I mean, think back when I was a kid, the idea that I would have been a television uh, correspondent, it would have been unthinkable. I could barely speak in fluent sentences. But because of John's great uh, research and just like very searing stories, I'm um, actually decided that, uh, you know, why have I been afraid to talk about this? He was so courageous, and I, um, not even a fraction of that. But so what happened, just briefly, I remember being a kid, um, going to answer the telephone that was in our kitchen, and I couldn't get the words out. I literally could not say hello. I said, ha, 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 hello. And, um, and my brother, Mike, who's, you know, the closest person to me in my life, he's about a year and a half older than me, he, like, grabbed the phone out of my hand, and he took care of the call. But after that, I was probably five or so. I realized that I just had a very hard time uh, speaking fluently. So my mom really, you know, she could have left me and she could have just kind of ignored it, but uh, really um, uh, did research and spent a lot of time for years driving me an hour uh, to Lincoln, Nebraska, to a speech clinic at the University of Nebraska. And I just spent a lot of time. It's called the Barclay Center. And those student uh, speech pathologists and others were uh, real heroes of mine to this day for, I don't remember their names, unfortunately, but they were graduate students and others, and they really helped me work through uh, my stuttering. Well, they, they must see you on television and say, wow, that little guy did all right. We must, have, we must have helped. What was it like, though, when you answered the phone and couldn't get the words out? And I, I know you grew up in a small community. I think there were 12 people in your graduating class. Right. But uh, what were you teased? 
about your stutter? Sure. Were you self-conscious about your stutter? How was it to be a little kid with that problem? In every respect, I was. I was teased. I was self-conscious about it. I don't know if I was bullied in the sense of today's bullying because, you know, everyone, I was the youngest of uh, of three brothers. So, you know, of course, you had I was some bullied. muscle, huh? Yeah. 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 Well, also, they probably weren't going to let other people bully you. Yeah. So it, uh, it definitely is quaint by today's standards because there's not social media bullying and other things. But, but no, look, I mean, it was, uh, it was isolating. I did not, um, you know, from not being able to speak up in class to not being able to, you know, um, you know, even if you know the answer, to be afraid to talk, to be afraid to give book reports, it it really carried with me. And even through um, high school and into college, I mean, it uh, it is uh, it's just something that always um, was something hanging over to me. Like I I was more afraid to have a public stuttering incident than. Uh, being quiet. So I found outlets in other ways. Uh, I really enjoyed music and I um, played the trumpet in the Cornusker marching band at uh, at the University of Nebraska, the only way I would get on the football field because I'm clearly not <laughs> a football player. Uh, so I found other outlets, but speaking was not one of them. So to say that I would be basically making my career doing uh, a combination of reporting and talking, I never would have imagined that, but it was just because of, uh, of a lot of help. But my mom, Diane, is absolutely at the top of that list. So, oh, so much to her. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Val Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. As I thought about your career and when I read John's book, but also as I was getting ready to talk to you today, you know, like I knew you, you know, you're a Tribune alum like I am. You covered the Barack Obama campaign. You were, a, we'll talk about your journalism in a second, but you were a brilliant political reporter from a very young age because, of course, you were at the Des Moines Register where, uh, in the state of Iowa where politics comes in the mother's milk there. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, you, you got an early start on that. 
But you made this jump from the Times to ABC News. And I thought, what a courageous move, because this must have played on your mind. Tell me about that and your thought process in taking that job. Uh, it was exciting and, and terrifying, actually. It was the uh, right after uh, President Obama's uh, second inaugural, I got a call from ABC News, and uh, they uh, wanted me to meet with the uh, president of the news division, Ben Sherwood at the time, and they yeah. wanted, wanted me to come work uh, on Capitol Hill. And it, it was it's interesting now, um, the reason that there was an opening is because my uh, friend and, and our uh, colleague Jake Tapper had just left ABC to go to CNN. So there was a big opening at ABC. Jonathan Carl was on the Hill, came to the White House. So they uh, wanted to hire someone who uh, was a reporter. And by that point, I'd been at the Times about seven years or so. I'd covered Congress. I obviously covered the Obama campaign, covered the White House. Um, so they offered me this job. And at that point, the future of the New York Times was very uncertain. And that was one of my biggest drivers. I mean, the year before, uh, we, for a couple summers prior to that, uh, we had a couple weeks of unpaid furloughs. Um, and we used to joke in the Washington Bureau of the Times that we should all open up a bar called Furloughs. And when it was our time <laughs> to have two weeks off, we would run it. But then Not a bad longtime, idea, actually. But yeah. My longtime buddy, uh, Carl Hulse and I, also from Illinois, we thought that uh, you know some people might drink the profits. So we decided not to do that. But the point is that you know, the future of the print industry, uh, even in 2013 when I went to ABC, it was uncertain. I mean, the Times was... Uh, one of the best places I've ever worked. I loved working in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, just the mind meld and the things that you could just uh, learn by not even saying a word, just listening was so great. But I thought, you know, a new challenge, I should uh, diversify myself, kind of practice the old uh, thing I saw my dad do in the 80s, diversify yourself, not just do one thing, crops or livestock, not just do print newspapers. You know, I was definitely, I've always wanted to be a reporter, tell people stories. So I thought, why not jump at this opportunity? But I was scared. I was scared to death that someone at ABC would find out that I had a speaking impediment and that I, I struggled to speak. And boy, it was the hardest, most humbling uh, career move I've ever made. Um, I was there a couple years and I loved my time there, uh, but I was, not, uh, I was not that great, to be honest. Were there moments when the speech impediment evidenced itself that frightened you? Oh, for sure. Like being on the set of Good Morning America in New York, and I kind of had a stammering moment. And, you know, this is network television, so they were not as forgiving. I was not on the set of Good Morning America for quite some time after that. So then you would practice. I would try and get my rest. And it comes at weird times. Like sometimes I can be as fluent as the day is long, and other times uh, you just uh, stumble. But I learned a lot from that. And, um, you know, certainly in terms of of other challenges that people have. Mine is pretty small. I mean, it's a forest world problem, you know, uh, stumbling a little bit, but. Um, yeah. Let me say just as a colleague, though, you're, you're fluent almost all the time and uh, which is what makes your story uh, so important because people look at you and say, this dude really is good. And it should be an inspiration to everyone who's struggling that you can prevail, you can move on, you can, and even if you are at times uh, struggling with an impediment, it doesn't mean that you can't succeed. And one of the reasons I'm so inspired by John Hendrickson is that he still very much struggles with his stutter. And yet he's one of the very fine journalists in this country, very fine 
political journalists in this country. And one of the piece, one of the the way he came to public attention, Jeff, was a piece he did about President Biden, right, and his speech impediment. And it made me wonder: Did you ever talk to Biden about it? I have. I have talked to him about it. I knew President Biden when he was in the Senate. I knew him when he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And there was a young senator from Illinois named Barack Obama who was on that committee. And sometimes Chairman Biden would talk so long at hearings, the senators at the end of the dais would not uh, get much time to speak. Um, So I I knew Senator Biden, Vice President (laughs) Biden. So no, we have had conversations about it. And he pulled me aside once. Um, It was actually a few years after I joined CNN, I think. and he, it was on Labor Day, now that I'm thinking about it, Labor Day at a, a Labor Day parade in uh, Pittsburgh, pulled me aside. We were doing an interview uh, and he said, gosh, I've seen you on TV. And he's like, that's a really big move that you made. And he's like, you know, I love watching you and talked about his stuttering issue. And I didn't, as I told John Hendrickson, I've kicked myself a million times thinking, God, I should have done that story. But again, I would have been um, A, not wise enough or written it as well as John did. But um, I was afraid to talk about it. And I think that John's story and the Biden campaign almost didn't let that story happen. And I think it was one of the most defining uh, stories of that campaign and certainly going forward. One of, the, one of the things that was striking about that story and was the degree to which Biden talked about it as a problem in his past. Right. And, uh, you know, I think John was struck by that. But it's pretty clear, you, you know, there are times when he stammers there are times when he still struggles with that you talk about when you get tired that's you know that's when you're most vulnerable to those kinds of moments uh and he clearly has those moments and it's used against him in you know in these tiktok memes and so on what when he has those moments what goes through your head it's very easy to identify in my mind when he's having one of those moments and i think that now that this is out there more in the public discussion it's not that he doesn't know what to say and you can just see him adjusting on the fly, you know, not starting sentences with uh, uh, with a D word, a hard consonant, sort of changing um, changing up as he's going. Uh, I mean, we've seen plenty of his gaffes. I mean, there is a you know a long record of his gaffes, not recently, going back for years. But you can tell when it's something like this. You can tell when it's a uh, just a a blockage. And I think that that is just something that uh, has become much more obvious. And it's not a, um, it's obviously not debilitating, but it certainly is ability or it's a moment uh, that people uh, mock and make fun of. Uh, so I definitely always have my eye on those. There are plenty of things to criticize any president for their record. If they've lived up to their promises, uh, how they speak in that respect, I think is not one of them. Yeah. And you know, you, you see him using devices. I, I think some of these repetitive phrases like not a joke and so on are ways of collecting himself, uh, you know, when he, when he's getting to those places. But in any case, I, I agree with you. And uh, one of the things that he's going to have to overcome in this race are these memes that don't reflect how he performs on the job, but they reflect how he performs in front of a camera, which becomes how we know presidents. It's a battle. Let's go back to your career. So you, like I, were this geek who loved news from a very early age. (laughs) So you knew, I think you said in the fifth grade somewhere, you said you knew this is what I wanted to do. Talk to me about that and why that was such a passion and an interest for you. I just love the news. Uh, Politics was part of it, but even before I really liked politics, I just liked knowing things first. I liked the curiosity factor of 
of finding things out and telling people stories. I think probably somewhere down the line, um, you know, we all have uh, relatives who are good storytellers. I had this Uncle Milo who I remember well, such a good storyteller. And I just liked telling people stories, finding things out, causing a little bit of trouble, perhaps, um, you know, for what you did, by the way, at the University of Nebraska. You, I did. You, you, with, you uh, took on an icon there, the football coach, Tom Osborne. You know, these were back during my uh, heady daily Nebraskan days. And look, that's back when Nebraska uh, was a winning football uh, program, which is a little bit uh, in the, uh, the in the rearview mirror. But look, we uh, we did challenge authority then. Nebraska won three national championships when I was in college, so I was there at a great time. But with that, there were also a lot of players who were arrested for um, attempted murder charges, robbery charges, sexual assault charges. So we covered that very, very, very aggressively. And it did get me crossways with uh, Tom Osborne, the legendary football coach, who went on to run for governor and then served as a congressman, a very, very decent man. But at the time, he essentially was the most powerful person in the state. And as student journalists, we relished the idea of sort of uh, butting heads with uh, him and the athletic uh, department. Um it was uh, it was great fun and good practice as it turns out for uh, things to come in the future. He didn't get you kicked out of the band, did he? Uh, no, I left the band behind after two uh, after two years as a trumpet player. I wanted to focus on uh, on my journalism, so um, those days were, were were over. But did not revoke my football tickets. But it's uh, um, it was definitely a good uh, experience for it. It was actually the first time I was ever on television too. I was interviewed by ESPN uh, back when I was in college. Uh, and uh, yeah, seems like a very, very long time ago, but certainly <laughs> good training for uh, for the years to come. Like I said, the other battles that we currently uh, wage. Your first job was at the Des Moines Register, and I think you were there during the caucuses. Right. Talk about that and your exposure to the Iowa caucuses and, and what you thought about them. They, they're, they're, they're no longer on the Democratic side. Uh, we just saw one on the Republican side. I- I'll share my views in a second, but I'm eager to know what you learned from them. Yeah, I was interning at the Chicago Tribune right after college, and uh, a job offer came open at the Des Moines Register, and I jumped at the chance to do it. I was the courthouse reporter, but also it was about a year before the 1999-2000 caucus uh, cycle started, uh, which with uh, George W. Bush and Steve Forbes, the cast of Republicans, Al Gore, Bill Bradley. A wide open race on both sides. So I was at the register for a little under four years, but I hit it during that caucus window. And boy, it was great. It was it was back when newspapers were still, um, you know, the dominant uh, source of information, and um, really made lifelong source relationships and friendships with many people who went on to serve in the Bush administration. It's, it's when I first met Governor uh, George W. Bush and a lot of his advisors and things. But the Iowa caucuses, I fell in love with them instantly because there were people in small towns and big towns coming out to see the candidates, asking them questions. And it really was a front row seat to um, how we pick our presidents. And so I'm very biased on one thing, and that is the Iowa caucuses. At least it was a very good opportunity uh, for individual citizens to ask their potential leaders questions. Now, it's changed a bit. Things have become much more nationalized. You feel that these cafes and schoolhouses are more backdrops now of a of a larger campaign. But at at the time today, you really could see the value of this. And then going on to um, a couple uh, cycles down the road uh, in 2008 when you were obviously on the Obama campaign, but not for Iowa. 
uh, Senator Obama would probably still be a senator or would have moved on to something else. He won the Iowa caucuses because he won people over um, person by person, expanded the electorate. And it was an amazing thing to watch. And frankly, at the beginning, he wasn't so good. By the end of the Iowa caucus campaign, he had gotten markedly, markedly better, at least in the voters' eyes. And it was because of that uh, rigorous um, obstacle course he had to run through. He would completely agree with what you just said, every aspect of it. There are all kinds of barriers, and we'll talk about this in a second, to anyone running against Trump in in this campaign. And it got harder and harder with each indictment as as there was a rallying around effect. But I was always suspicious of uh, the DeSantis dream because I knew how hard it was to be the Ballyhooed candidate heading into this maelstrom of national politics. And Iowa is really a testing ground. I actually think DeSantis became better by the end of the campaign than he was at the beginning. For sure. He definitely did. But you get judged very quickly if you're the guy who everybody's watching and Obama experienced that. But yeah, you know, Iowa, the the spectacle of candidates actually having to interact with human beings in a real, real and genuine way is something that you don't see that much in a presidential campaign, except in these early contests. We spent 87 days in Iowa, and uh, they were formative, I think. They were formative for him. And I'll never forget, Jeff, flying a plane with him and Robert Gibbs. And Gibbs said, hey, the political guys want you to call this high school student and ask uh, her because they think she can unlock 12 caucus votes. In Iowa, you can vote if you're going to turn 18 before mm-hmm. the uh, general election. And so he, he calls and he says, hey, we all we can only hear it. This is Barack Obama, and I'm, I'm calling you. I want to talk to you about the caucuses. And then his face kind of sunk, and she said, uh, and he said, yeah, uh, okay, great. And he, he hung up, and he hands the phone back, and Gibbs said, well, what would she say? He said, she said she was going into class, and could I call her later? And he said, man, this he said, man, this running for president is a humbling thing. For sure. It's good for them to be humbled. It's good for them to have to do those kinds of things and have those kinds of conversation. Without a doubt. And I think that, uh, I mean, that wasn't that long ago, um, but boy, the campaign trail has changed significantly. There was no social media in that campaign, no Twitter. Really, Facebook was still just used by college kids, no Instagram. So it made uh, covering things totally different. Uh, But I absolutely uh, think that Iowa and just that grassroots process, wherever it is, is so good for our country and democracy. And this isn't a partisan thing. I saw uh, George W. Bush do similar things eight years before that. Uh, We saw a lot of candidates do it. Um, It's one thing that... uh, that Trump certainly bypassed this time. And when he was running the first time in 2015, 2016, he didn't do small events like that, but he did retail and he was very, yeah. very good at it. When he first arrived at the Iowa State Fair in 2015, he was a the main event, the main attraction. So he did not have the same uh, questions uh, from people just because he arrived as a celebrity. Yeah, um, right. But it uh, um, so it was different in many, many respects. But um, one of the reasons he didn't win Iowa in 2016 is because he didn't sort of take the caucus organization process seriously. That was entirely different this time. Yeah. He certainly did. You did a wonderful piece on that. Uh, I think it was one of the best pieces of the caucuses talking about the operation, the Trump operation. I mean, it is such a, a paradox that a guy who seems at times to be increasingly sort of unhinged had his most ra- he has his most rational political operation 
and uh, they they've produced there, and they may well again in New Hampshire here. You grew up in one era in journalism, and now you're functioning in another. You grew up in the tail end of an era when there were actual editions, and you had time to contemplate your piece, and social media was not a factor, and the internet was not as much a factor. How has that changed from the days you were a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune and the Des Moines Register through your covering the campaign for the Times? To where we are today, because as you point out, it's just a much different time. It is just a um, a fast moving car versus a you know just a bicycle, and that makes it sound a little quainter than it was. I mean, we've always moved fast, but there's far less time to think, and I think there's far less time to listen. I don't think we're any more informed because of this. I don't think our citizenry and the electorate is is more informed, probably less informed, despite all the information at their fingertips. So I think as a reporter, I'm constantly in awe by all of the people on our uh, CNN team and the other networks and newspapers, just the younger reporters. Uh, we call them embeds who have to uh, file video constantly. and drive and write stories constantly. And how can you possibly have time to think? So it's great training for things, but it is, uh, it's really hard to sort of synthesize everything in a respect in real time. But I think what is, it's still, what's so important is just to take a minute, and get the context and but more than that it's just to listen to people one of the things i love most about my job and i've been able to do it a lot this past year is really listen to voters and when you listen to voters um you really get a much better understanding of what's going on that sounds obvious since voters are the ones who who vote but i see a lot of reporters just like rushing off to the next thing there's not time always make time to uh, listen to voters. And I have a great sidekick on the campaign trail, Bonnie Cap, who's my longtime friend yes, and producer. And mine. And yes. Bonnie, yes, and yours. And Bonnie will watch people throughout a rally. And at the end, she'll be like, we want to talk to her and her. I'm like, how do you know? She's like, just how they were paying attention or if they weren't paying attention or if they were applauding. So really, uh, like studying the crowd and how they're reacting to the candidates. Um, if they're clapping on social security, if they're look angry on immigration, uh, I think it's just such an interesting way to sort of get a, at least a bit of a sense of what's going on, just a focus group in real time. Our buddy John King is now out on the road and doing- Yeah, it's great to have him out here. Great stuff. Just, just great, great stuff talking to voters. And it just elicits a kind of depth of understanding that you, know, you can't get from polling and you can't get right. from Washington, frankly. Uh, I've said this before here, but Gary Hart, the former senator who ran for president, once told me something that I, words I've lived by for 35 years since he told me that or more, he said, Washington's always the last to get the news. For sure. And that is so <laughs> clear. You know, you can see things happening in real time and then, you know, you're, it hasn't happened yet in Congress or your editors haven't seen it yet, et cetera. Obama was a good example of that. For years, the people in the newsroom in New York and other places just assumed that Hillary Clinton would win yes. and they weren't. I'm like, guys, something's happening on the ground here. And that didn't mean that I was cheering for Obama, as you know. Uh, we quarreled many, many, many times, and he thought I was yes. too snarky and other things. So yeah. I was not his favorite, and I was just fine with that. No, you were a pain in the ass, man. Uh, I was happy to be. I'm sh uh, but no, I f I'm sure there are a lot of other candidates who felt the same way right. about you, which is kind of where you want to be if you're a reporter. I'm sure. But, but I do remember, I'm like, guys, there's something happening out here that the polls haven't picked up yet. There's just something happening. So it's, it's different in this race, in this current present day race, because there is a quasi-incumbent 
who is probably on the verge of uh, running again against uh, a current incumbent. So it's uh, it's different. But uh, again, voters are one constant, and I think it's imperative that we listen to them. Yeah, I was sitting on the set this morning, and they were running some of John's piece, and I was going to joke that you know how resentful I was that you know we had to give all this time to voters instead of bloviators sitting on a set in New York. <laughs> telling people what's actually going on. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Talk about Trump. As a phenomenon, you covered him. Uh, sure. Am- among the many things you've done for CNN is you've covered the White House and mm-hmm. and you've had a lot of interaction uh, from a distance. And even when you were at the Times, one of the things that you have said is how different Trump's attitude is toward the media privately and publicly. For sure. Talk about that dichotomy. Well, my first interaction with uh, Donald uh, J. Trump was back when I was at the Times when he was flirting with the idea, one of his many flirtations of running for president. And he flew up to New Hampshire during the Obama administration in 2011. The whole birth certificate uh, thing was raging, et cetera. But it was on that day. He was in the center of it, yeah. Right, on that day. And we we did write a story in the Times. I got a furious phone call from Michael Cohen, who, of course, was then Donald Trump's uh, fixer. And he said, Mr. Trump is furious that your story's not in the front page. I think it was on page like A24 or something, you know, like New York entertainer comes to New Hampshire. Anyway, so at that point, he said he's furious it's not on the front page. I was kind of amazed it was in the paper at all because he wasn't running for president, but we went up there to kind of see the phenomenon. So that was my first interaction with him. But I remember something very clearly uh, that really gets to your point about how of a consummate uh, media consumer and uh, manipulator and operator Donald Trump is of the media is um, in 2015, like I said, when he was at the Iowa State Fair, it's the first time I had a chance to interview him when I was at CNN. And after it was over, and he was being very friendly to the media then, he loved it. And he said, I've always wanted to ask you, he's like, why the hell did you leave the New York Times? It's the best paper in the world. And I'm standing there holding a CNN microphone, and it was just a private conversation. So look, I mean, this persona- I think a lot of people would be stunned to hear that. Yeah, it's true. And anyone who works at the New York Times- um, certainly wouldn't be my our good friend Maggie Haberman knows well that uh, that the former president is very attuned to what's on the front page and what's not. But uh, look, um, I think that he has in many ways been very successful in discrediting local institutions. You know, just uh, core parts of our of our system, including uh, the Fourth Estate, including the press. But he privately, he you know has snapped, yelled. I covered the the uh, White House for the first uh, half of his first term then I moved back to politics, but I was there every day, went to all around the world with him, generally very gracious and interested in having uh, his words on television, but also very pointed and vindictive and other things when 
uh, you're not reporting uh, what um, he views as as the positive news. But I think that uh, now one constant in all of this is that I've made clear, at least I've I've tried. One of my goals is we're observers in this process. We're there to chronicle, tell stories, hold people to account. We are not actors in this process. He very much wanted to lure CNN and other reporters in to be his opposition. I'm not his opposition. He called us the enemy. Uh, that was, I was trying, you know, some reporters took different approaches to that, but very much tried to make this not about us. And I think that that, as we look going forward, I think it's also clear, do not allow uh, yourself to be, to the extent that it's possible, his opposition, because that's not our role. Did you feel like you were being put in jeopardy by that? If you're, as a, as a White House correspondent for the network that he specifically singled out as one of his foils but you know there are a lot of there are a lot of people who get very animated by his uh, when he targets people for sure look i've covered presidents a friend of mine in the secret service always says we protect who you elect and we cover who you send us so i covered president bush obama uh, trump biden and we'll see after this so i did not want to change how i do my job based on on the person in office we ask tough questions. We hold people to account. You must change, you know, obviously with the time and technology, but I, so was I, uh, you know, I was not the flashiest White House reporter in some respects in the Trump era, but I really, like my very good friend, Caitlin Collins, when she came into the White House booth for the first time, so prepared and thinking of questions, we always just talked substance and had a a running list of questions on the the wall in our White House booth, like what we should ask the president. So you have to balance the vitriol and not being drawn into this. But I firmly believe that we are observers in this process. We are not the uh, we're not the enemy, obviously, and uh, we shouldn't fall into that trap. It's sort of astonishing as we sit here today. And I thought about this last weekend on the third anniversary of Biden's inauguration. I was thinking back to what the Capitol looked like on that day. And you may have been out there. There was uh, chain link fences yeah. around the Capitol. There were National Guard with weapons around the Capitol. And uh, the Capitol was still scarred from being overrun by a mob on January 6th. And Trump was leaving Washington in disgrace. Unbelievable, really. And now three years later, he's about to close out maybe in historically short fashion, the Republican nominating process, and he's returning as the nominee of the party, though he is under four indictments, including for activities around the 2020 election. How do you explain that? Look, I think that the Trump fatigue that was very real, uh, and we're just talking Republicans here, never mind the Democrats, they can you know sit and watch this for a second, but the Republicans, the Trump fatigue among Republicans was very, very real at the beginning of this presidential cycle. And certainly in the halls of Congress, in Iowa, New Hampshire, other places, it changed. Something over the last year dramatically changed. And you can really mark it on your calendar when those first indictments happened with Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, and then moving forward to Georgia, and then the Jack Smith federal case. And um, it had this rallying around Trump effect, largely because of where people get their news and information, largely because there was just so much people conflated all of this. At the same time, one of his biggest arguments was that, uh, or excuse me, one of the biggest arguments against him was that he couldn't beat Biden 
that began to change. Yes. President Biden's numbers, he became weaker and Trump grew stronger. And those are very two connected things. So when it was no longer seen by many Republicans uh, that uh, Trump couldn't win in their eyes, and we'll see, we don't know the answer to that question, that made him stronger. So even people I would check back with in Iowa, even as re recently as last week, many people didn't vote for him who we talked to but nearly all of them say, "Oh, I'll support him in a general election." So that is kind of the uh, we're you know Republicans and Democrats are going to their corners here. But I think the biggest way to explain uh, what happened with Trump over the past year is just the uh, he became uh, he weaponized his indictments uh, as a victim, yeah. and at the same time that President Biden uh, was having many challenges. Yeah, he has a feral genius for branding. I mean, branding sure. stories. I mean, seventy percent of the Republicans believe that the or sixty to seventy that the last election was stolen because he branded it that way. As he's branded these indictments as you know retribution from the administration. So, and a lot of Republicans have bought into that story. Do you think it would have been a different story if he had not been indicted? Do you think we would be in a different place now? Who knows? I mean, I think the campaign would have played out in a more competitive way. I think that um, that people, many Republicans, would have had um, you know more of an interest in 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 moving on. But perhaps the die was cast actually much sooner than all this. Perhaps the die was cast um, at the end of January '01, when Speaker McCarthy went back to Mar-a-Lago, and uh, and Donald Trump was no longer ostracized, and he was still show that he controlled the Republican Party. So I don't know. I mean, I th I think the indictments, or you could ask, what if there was one indictment? It was the Jack Smith one, and not four of them. There was sort of a an uh, overkill sense among many Republicans and others that there was so many indictments. This is starting to look look odd. Uh, we'll never know. But it's also difficult to beat an incumbent. I mean, it's uh, for all the ink we've spilled on how bad the DeSantis campaign was, and you could write a book on their challenges. It's also pretty hard to beat uh, the leader of a party. Yeah, we've had a succession of change elections in this country. There's, right. you know, some of it has to do with this project of social media to keep pressing on our discontent. Look, on the way out, let me ask you this: I think if Trump closes this thing out tonight, there's going to be a lot of commentary about what a colossus he is. Is it possible, in some ways, that this isn't necessarily the best thing for him? that there's some benefit to beating up on his Republican opponents and coming out the winner every week. And now we're on to a general election and he's going to be in focus a lot more. He's not going to have a chance to, he's not going to have these weekly sort of Harlem Globetrotters versus Washington generals thing where the outcome is determined beforehand. And he's going to, he's going to, his vulnerabilities are going to become more obvious. Sure. I think, you know, there's definitely something to be said for that argument by gaining strength in the primary by even if it's not you know that much of a contest going forward i think it's still better of course for him to notch these wins look if this uh if this race does effectively become a rematch this will be the earliest effective start to the general election in modern history i mean back in 04 it was early march so look i think it can play both ways for him i'm not sure history is the best guide here because we have no yes. historical reference for uh, he's going to be in the in court so much. Uh, so I'm not sure that it matters in that respect because every day he's at the federal courthouse, if that case goes forward, if the Georgia case does, and he'll be able to just make his appearance there. But I think um, 
the independent voters that we talk to here in uh, New Hampshire, you know, they will certainly have wise lessons and and thoughts come six and seven months from now. And anyone who says how this election is going to go, who knows? Yeah. Buckle up. But I think one big factor is, uh, do any of these trials go forward between yeah. now and the election? They may not. Yeah. Jeff Zeleny, I uh, love you as a friend. I value you as a colleague and I admire you for all you've accomplished and for your candor and for your honesty. So thank you. Uh, it's great to see you, David. Uh, likewise, on all of that, it's good to uh, um, watch this campaign uh, together. So uh, thanks very much for having me. It's going to be interesting. No doubt. On to South Carolina or, you know, who knows. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.